why don't we open our Bibles? We're going to be taking a look at two passages uh, mainly here today, and I'll tell you what we're going to be doing. But open up in your Bibles real quick to the, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, and then hold that place, and then turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8. And um, a little kind of short background as to what we're going to be doing. Um, the past few weeks, we've been going through a little series called Signs of Life, and uh, it's more of a little uh, break from the Gospel of Mark that we've been going through um, expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, it's a little uh, segue, eight-week segue kind of of topics. And the main ideas that we're really trying to tackle and unpack and understand is realizing that whenever God moves, when God shows up, when God does things, there's always these evidences or traces or signs that God has been there, that God has done something. Um, that's true in this world. We saw that through the incarnation. In other words, that God came into this world and through the person of Jesus, uh, but then also in your lives subjectively. In other words, there are things that you have experienced in your life that you have demonstrated or should demonstrate a changed life. Um, some of the examples of that would be you love differently. You view community a little bit differently. In other words, rather than just simply being um, someone that kind of selectively picks out people that are just like you, Right? That's the way we typically live in this world. We pick out people. So if you're trying to figure out what type of choices of friends do you typically call to become part of your little circle of friends, uh, one of the things that you'll notice oftentimes uh, is you have all these commonalities with them. You like the same music. You dress the same type of, in same type of clothing. Uh, you have the same taste in food, same taste in a lot of different types of uh, media, uh, movies, so on and so forth. In other words, they're just like you. So, in other words, it's this idea that we like ourselves so much, we look for little replicas in other people. Uh, but what the gospel does, when the gospel comes into us and changes us, it causes us to broaden our horizons. It causes us to see that there are people in this world, maybe even around our lives, that are nothing like us. People we would never select to be our friends or to be brought into our lives or for us to invest time and energy and money into, and yet we do that. And the reason why we do that is because that's an evidence or a sign that God has been at work or God has done something redemptively in your life. So in other words, the good news is this, all right? The good news is this, is that God has not simply abandoned this world in its brokenness and nor abandoned you in your brokenness, but that God has chosen to do something about that brokenness, that God has chosen to come into this world to work redemptively through Jesus and has chosen to come into your life and to bring about a repair, a reconstruction, a reordering, a new life of who you are. In other words, the way that you love before Christ is an incomplete form of love. The way that you view community before Christ is an incomplete form of community. In other words, it doesn't lead to your own personal wholeness, nor does it lead to social wholeness in this world. In other words, what Jesus wants to do is he wants to change things, to bring salvation. The way Jesus said, pray. That God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. This is what the cross begins to accomplish. Yes, heaven is a part of that. All right, heaven, one day we will go there. But before that happens, God gives us a life to live redemptively now. All right, so the point is we're taking a look at various signs or evidences that God has worked and God has done great things in our lives. So I'm going to read these two passages. We'll pick it up at uh, the book of Acts first, Acts chapter 2, 44 to 47. Great passage. I'll read it. It says this, and we'll move 
real quickly to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. Today, by the way, we're going to be taking a look at the issue of generosity, generosity, because generosity happens to actually be one of the signs of life. One of the evidences that you have met God is that you view your money differently. You view your time, you view your life, you view what you have been given differently. Rather than viewing your life kind of the way Stooge would, in other words, everything is yours, and it's got to be protected and safeguarded, or if you don't have it yet, you fight feverishly to get it. Uh, If grace has come into your life, if God has changed you, if there are evidences or signs that God has uh, redeemed you or changed you, you view your money in particular differently. And we'll see how this took place within the early church. Okay, book of Acts, chapter 2, 44, down to 47, says this. Actually, we'll skip a couple verses, but we'll take a look at verse 44 and then 45 and then jump down to 47. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had need. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 47 says, praising God, having favor with all the people, and then the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, down to 3, and then jump down to verse 9. It says, this in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty had overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So I'll come back to this in a second here, but just this, this whole phrase or sentence right here is radically paradoxical. Did you notice it? Listen to it again. He says this, in severe affliction and in extreme poverty, how does he describe their attitude in the middle of that? Extreme joy. All right? Anybody here right now have no money? Raise your hand. All right? Like, you're, you're broke. I mean, like, I'm not even sure you're going to pay your bills. Uh, anybody here in extreme oppression or affliction or difficulties, trials, hardships at all? Raise your hand. couple. Both. No one. No one wants to admit that. That's cool, I guess. We're a bunch of liars. Pray for that. Um, the bottom line is this is that all of us at some point are in some form of affliction, poverty, hardship, depression that's coming into our lives. But here's what Paul's saying is that these people in the middle of extreme poverty and extreme affliction are radically joyful. Radically joyful. Come back to that. Verse 3 says, For they gave to their, uh, to their, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I want to pray. Get to work. God, we ask you right now for your help. God, we recognize that in a lot of ways in in so many of our lives, um, our wallets, our purses, our bank accounts can oftentimes be the very last thing that actually gets saved hearts get saved, we're excited about going to heaven one day, and yet the reality, God, we oftentimes hold on tenaciously to our money, and really what it does is it just simply proves to the, proves the fact that oftentimes we're really trusting our money to save us. When it's there, we feel at peace, we have rest, our hopes are fulfilled. When it's not there, we panic, we're full of anxieties, we feel like we're in hell. And God, all that simply does is it shows the true reality within our heart is that we oftentimes, even though we may be very slow to admit it, we, we actually love money more than we love you. 
And God, what we need is a transformation in our hearts. What we need is a change. What we need, God, is to be able to see you for who you are. And God, to recognize that you are King of kings and Lord of lords and that you hold all things in your hands and that money, as powerful as it is in our culture, it's not all powerful. Money, as important as it is in our culture, it's not all important. So God, I pray that you would help us to see this really important sign or evidence of life at work or that should be at work within us. And God, if it's not, I pray that it would be a sign that points to the fact that there may be need to be some areas in our lives that the gospel needs to go deeper, penetrate further. So God, we just give our hearts to you right now. We ask that you would move in our midst, God, that we would be known as a church for our generosity, radical generosity. Not by way of coercion, not by way of manipulation, not by way of guilt or shame, but by way of overflowing joy for what you've done for us. So we commit this morning in your hands. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. Um, the reality is, I'm going to just say something really quick, and I'm going to begin to get to work on this, is that the reality is that um, there's a tendency, and I'll, and I'll be really honest, at the beginning of the church, when I planted the church uh, back in 93, we started kind of the first official services around 94. We started off in our house, but for the first maybe five years or, or so, um, I talked about money never. In fact, we didn't do offerings. We just didn't say anything at all about money. And the reason for that was because I had this firm conviction in my heart or I had this idea in my mind that, that money is taboo. It's been abused. In a lot of ways, we were coming off of the heels of a lot of TV evangelists that were, you know, buying their fourth jet. And, you know, I was kind of like, ah, money, church, Christianity, church plants. People are already suspicious and skeptical of money. And I don't want to talk about money because money kind of freaks people out. And therefore, it was just something that I just, I never talked about at all, ever. And if it came up in passages, I would just sort of go over it very quickly. And uh, to be really honest with you, it was, that was a sin on my part I had to repent from. Because in reality, Jesus talked about money a lot. Talked about money a lot. Because the reality is, is that money is not just simply an issue of uh, our, our wallets and whatnot, really money and how we invest it really is a worship issue. It's, a, it's an issue of worship. And just simply because uh, a thing has been in, uh, invalidated by improper use does not, nece- does not necessarily mean that it needs to be avoided. In other words, what I mean by that is because just because money and fiscal responsibility and churches and ministries and pastors and leaders that have abused money have been sort of the track record within the Christian church in America here, uh, that, doesn't that doesn't mean that it needs to be avoided. and doesn't, It should not be not talked about. In other words, it should be talked about, but in the proper context. It should be talked about in a way in which Jesus intends for it to be talked about. Because if we don't talk about these things, what can end up happening is that we can think, believe that we've had a work of grace happen in our lives, and most of us, we would fit in that category. But the idea of our wallets, the idea of how we invest our money, how we see our money, is sort of this whole other segment of our life that we just sort of push off to the side, and we never really want to talk about it. And the only times money kind of becomes an issue is when somebody asks for it. Then we get a little bit tense, we, our eyes start twitching, you know, our muscles start tweaking out a little bit, we get a little bit aggravated and upset, we don't we don't like to talk about money. And the reason why oftentimes this is the case is because we have this inordinate desire for it. 
we have this sort of love-hate relationship with money. And the point of the matter is, the way the Bible would describe this, is that in reality, we are enslaved to it. So in other words, something that exercises control over us, by definition, is something that we are enslaved to. So in other words, if we can't talk about money because we're uncomfortable about it, that is an evidence of the fact that what we need is deliverance. We need our hearts free. People that can freely talk about money, freely give money away, freely deal with money are people that are freed by the gospel. People that are not bound by it. They can, they can talk about it because it's not an issue per se in their life. Now money obviously is going to always have an important place in our society because it is what we use obviously to pay our bills, you know, fill our cars up with gas, make sure our mortgages are paid, to make sure that our kids have shoes. It's the most important thing that we use. It's our currency. But there is a temptation in all cultures, especially our own, to elevate money to a place or a factor where it is on par with God, if not even higher than God. And that's why I said earlier that there's a temptation that when we have it, we feel at rest. We're like, ah, oh, everything's going to be okay. I got money. My bills are going to be paid. My cable bill is going to be paid. My high-speed internet's going to be paid. All of these things that are absolute necessities for life in America are going to be all well taken care of. But if it's not there, we freak out full of anxieties, you know, we mope around, we're like, oh my gosh, my life is filled with radical trials and tribulations. Why? Because I, I couldn't go out to fire someone for the fourth time this week. Life is horrible. And the reality is, is that it gives evidence to the fact that for the most part, we have a standard of living that if we were to take it and put it into the context of the rest of history, not just the rest of the world, but the rest of history, we live for the most part, by and large, with great wealth, with great privilege, with great prestige. So here's my point, that money and how we talk about it and really its issue and its hold in our lives, oftentimes for the most part, is really a worship issue. It's a worship issue. If we worship God and money is not our God, then we're free to use money. We're free to talk about it. We're free to scheme. We're free to do things that are in line with generosity. If we're not free for money, if we're bound by money, if it exercises authority or control over us, anytime we talk about money, we, we freak out. So, it's a worship issue. I'm going to talk about three things here today with regard to the issue of generosity. First thing I want to talk about is the source of generosity. The second thing is the measurement of generosity. Thirdly, I want to talk about the motivation of generosity. The first thing in terms of the source and then the measurement, and then the motivation. The source of generosity, first of all, we're going to see in a moment here, actually comes from God. But first of all, I, I want to basically state that generosity is one of those things in our culture that we oftentimes are a little bit uncomfortable with, with being a part of giving generously, being generous, whatnot. But here's the thing. We know when someone's not being generous, right? This past week, I'm, I'm sure some of you have actually seen this next slide. You guys see that? Anybody see that? Anybody not see that? All right. All right. All right. Here you go. You get to see it for the first time. Um, it basically, obviously, has been circulating. By the way, I actually took this from the Huffington Post. And uh, apparently the person, uh, the pastor, actually, that had gone out to eat and chose not to tip this particular person, um, the, the waitress lost her job. She was working at Applebee's. She lost her job because she shouldn't have done this. And then secondly, the pastor actually apparently uh, filed an, a, an official apology to the waitress that had got lost 
her job because she posted this. But the point of the matter is, is that it's kind of this idea of like, I gave God 10%, why should I give you 18%? And then later on, the pastor, pastor went on to basically explain that, hey, look, with Obamacare rising, you got to pay all these other things. Why should I have to actually pay somebody? In other words, the whole issue here is a lack of generosity. It was amazing to see kind of the comments about this, that people were like up in arms. Are you kidding? How? Uh, can someone not give generously, especially a pastor? But the reality is, the point is that when someone is not generous, it's very easy for us to identify. It's very easy for us to get frustrated when someone's not generous, all right? Anybody work, like, you know, in the service industry, as a waitress or at a coffee shop, and you rely on tips? Raise your hands. Anybody? Okay, handful of you. You know what it's like to not be given a generous tip, all right? I, I worked at Big Sky Cafe downtown for a while. I've worked at Marie Callender's, not here in town, but other Marie Callender's down in Huntington Beach. I've worked at restaurants and service industry many, many times in my life. And yet the reality is, it's very frustrating when people come in, buy a lot of food, get a lot of alcohol, are totally horrible in terms of having to deal with them, and they leave you nothing. Or better yet, is when they're Christians, they don't give you nothing, and they give you a nice little tip, uh, of, or, or like a track, you know, praise God, read this track, get to know Jesus. It's like, you're kidding me, right? You're kidding me. This is your idea of sharing Jesus? You're a horrible witness. Whole another point. The point that I really want to get back at is that we can identify when someone's not generous. So let's try to understand a little bit what generosity is and the source of true generosity. Uh, I did a little research on this particular word, generosity. Uh, it actually comes from a, a, a word, the etymology of this word is kind of interesting. Back in the, like the 17th century and before that, um, the word generous comes from uh, you know, the word of a genus or uh, uh, kind of carries the idea of kin. It's the idea of, of a part of a clan or a family or relationship. And it actually came from an ancient word that meant to identify people where that were part of nobility. Uh, if you were part of uh, a, a king's household, uh, you were a prince or a princess or something like that, uh, you would be identified as kind of part of this generous family. And uh, then that word kind of evolved and took shape in different time, type of form. And they would kind of describe, you know, that, that's, a, that's a generous portion of, you know, port. Um, in other words, that's a portion of port deserving a king, all right? So the, the word kind of shifted and morphed, and so like around the 18th century, 19th century, so on and so forth, it kind of became sort of the word by which we understand it today, and it's the idea of open-handedness or liberality, and really, as I was trying to think about, you know, what's the connection between uh, nobility and kingship and the way that we view it today, and I think the way that we would kind of draw the connection is that when someone treats someone with generosity, what you're actually doing is you're treating them like a king. You're treating them as if they are nobility. You're giving to them portions or sizes or uh, money or energy or whatever that is actually fit to, fit for someone of nobility, someone of high rank within culture and society. So, I mean, obviously, most of us, when we think of the word generous today, none of us think of it in that term, but that's the connection between the ancient usage of the word generous and the way that we think of the word generous today. And to really try to get to the answer of this, like the source of generosity, really, in the biblical sense, is actually God. Let's take a look at the next slide. So God, obviously, is the source of all generosity. And we see throughout the scriptures that he freely gives. Here's a handful of passages, Ephesians chapter 3.20. In Matthew 5, 43 to 45, it's in that passage that Jesus says that God actually causes the rain to come upon the just and the unjust. So God gives rain, God gives sunshine to Christians and pagans. God is totally indiscriminate 
with whom he showers blessing and gives of himself to these people. Uh, Romans chapter 8, 31, 32, it talks about, again, part of how God gives, gives generously, gives out of his liberality. And the reality is that God isn't stingy or greedy. He doesn't hold back. And this is, in reality, this is kind of getting into the heart of the gospel, that God, by his very nature, overflows, overflows. Because here's the thing, God can give you and I life because God in and of himself is the source of life. In other words, it's derivative from him. It comes from God because God has life and because God is generous, he gives life to you and I. In other words, every single thing that you and I have in this life is simply due to the fact that God has chosen to give us that. I mean, think about it this way. Some of you guys are going to school. You're getting an education. Some of you are already educated. Think about it this way. You didn't have any say whatsoever about what's, I mean, in other words, where you were born, what century you were born, what continent you were born. That was all God. Can you imagine if you had a great degree, but you lived in like Tibet or a third world country or some place where you couldn't actually use your you know, architectural skills or, you know, your abilities technologically and whatnot. Can you imagine, like, having kind of a keen mind but growing up in a jungle? But God chose, because he loves you, because he demonstrates, he's a giving, generous God. He's chosen to give you the gifts that you have. He's chosen to place you in the century that you live in. He's chosen to put you in this place right now. Everything is a gift from God's generous hand. This really is the storyline in the picture of the Bible. And really, at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, God's intention in creating mankind was to create an image bearer, male and female, that would reflect God. In other words, would reflect God in their generosity. That as Adam and Eve would have children, they would reflect God's generosity in giving life to their kids, in giving substance to their children, in showing kindness to their kids, and helping their kids, loving their kids, but what happened through the fall was that everything turned inward. Rather than Adam and Eve trusting God's generosity, they distrusted God's generosity. Remember, that was the whole temptation. Did God really say, is God's intentions really for you? Does God really, truly, genuinely, generously provide and care for you? And that led to this distrust. I don't think he does. Well, what's the next solution? I've got to look out for myself. And what happened through the fall is we became a people that inherited sort of this internalization. We look out for ourselves. In other words, we turn inward rather than turning outward. Generosity is turning outward. Stinginess is turning inward. Does that make sense? God turns outward. God is a generous God, and he always is giving. Part of the sin nature is that we have turned inward. I want to jump in to take a look at the next thing, which is the measure, measurement of generosity. You know that generosity can actually be measured? Love is, it can oftentimes be a difficult sign to measure. I mean, you can see it, you can observe it, but again, there's a tendency for someone to say, well, I love God. And it's hard to kind of press someone on that. Because, you know, you can say, well, how do I know that you love God? And you, then they can fight back and say, well, you don't see my heart. You don't know what I'm feeling inside. You know what's really going on inside. And again, it kind of moves into sort of a subjectiveness. But uh, generosity can actually be measured. 
You can claim to be generous, but not be generous, and that can easily be measured. Uh, there's a letter that was written um, around 130 AD. I want to read this to you. I think the next slide actually might have this. Um, it's really kind of an interesting letter. It's called the letter um, to Diognetus. And it's really kind of interesting. It's kind of a little bit of a snapshot into how early Christians uh, were viewed. And in this particular letter, he's basically describing the way Christians acted and lived throughout the Roman Empire. Um, he says this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, and, or customs. Any country can be their own homeland, but for them, their homeland, uh, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. In other words, Christians can live in any homeland, but the reality is, even though they may live in that particular nation, they have another nation that they really call their, home, their own homeland. He goes on to say, like others, they marry and they have children, but they do not mistreat them. It was common within a first century, uh, even second century, Rome, Roman Empire, to basically for a man to kind of view his children and his wife and other people as just sort of like uh, property. In other words, it was common back in those days, for example, if kind of similar to because it was a very patriarchal society, if you knew that you were going to have a child and your child happened to be a daughter, it was not uncommon for them to actually uh, kill their daughter. They wanted males. And the reality is what he's saying, this guy is basically describing that Christians, they have children, but they don't mistreat them as is common within the culture, within the, within the rest of the Roman Empire. Then he goes on to say, they share their food, but not their wives. In other words, they're very liberal with their money and their food and their goods, but very stingy with their spouses. All right? Very stingy with their sexuality. Think about the world that we live in today. Is the world we live in today, isn't it very liberal with its sexuality, but very stingy with its money? It's the exact opposite. Exact opposite. But what he's saying is that Christians, people that had and demonstrated these signs of life, that God had done something in their lives, they're very stingy with their sexuality. In other words, they just reserve it for their spouse. Very liberal, very giving, very generous with their money. It says they pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. So in other words, it's measurable. You can see it. I want you to take a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 45. Acts chapter 2, verse 45. There's three things I want you to notice with regard to the giving of the Christians that we had read about at the very beginning. The first thing that we see is that they gave regularly. Verse 45 of Acts chapter 2, it says this. It says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. And later on in Acts chapter 4, we're actually told of one particular guy that was very generous. Some of you guys might remember a guy by the name of Barnabas in the early church. Uh, Barnabas was a guy that had a large sum of money that he had uh, earned from a piece of property that he sold. And what was happening in the early church is they recognized that there were those that had need. And so what they did is they said, you know, let's figure out ways in which we can give. And this is a regular, ongoing thing in the early church. Needs were always regular. Needs were always coming up. In a lot of ways, this is true in any type of dynamic family, right? In some ways, take, for example, if you have kids here today, you know that you always need money for something, whether it's for food, right? You, you can't just be like, gosh, man, I just went out and bought food a month ago. Like, it keeps needing to be replenished. Or, I can't believe this, I just bought shoes for my kid 
two years ago. This is ridiculous. You will always need to be buying something because the needs are always reoccurring. And therefore, generosity also needs to be reoccurring. It's regular. But it's the same way even within the church, within Calvary Slow. Because Calvary Slow is a living, breathing family. It's growing. A lot of people are coming. There's a lot of needs that have uh, constantly being arisen. There's people that come that have lots of needs within their lives. They need counseling. They need input. They need money to pay bills. There's circumstances that are going on in their life. They need help because this is always happening. There's always a need for something. As the church continues to grow, at some point we are working on, and it's been a very long process, longer than what I have ever even expected. At some point we need to build out classrooms. We need to knock down this wall, expand the sanctuary size. We need to grow. There are things that are constantly, regularly happening. So therefore, uh, giving ought to be, as it was in the early church, regular. Because needs are always constant and always regular in any growing church, in any growing family. And we see that exactly happening within the early church. The second thing that we see is not only did they give regularly, but they also gave joyfully. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. It says, again, in severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty had overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I love this verse because, again, as I alluded to earlier, this is one of those amazing pictures. That here's a group of people that were in intense oppression, intense persecution. This is important to know. That you basically, oftentimes in our lives, we can look at people and say, you're either joyful or you're going through intense persecution. But rarely do you find someone that's going through intense problems and hardships coupled with extreme joy. Not just joy. I mean, Paul is careful with the words that he uses here. He describes the joy that they have as being extreme joy. All right? Like extreme sports. All right? It's extreme. The point of the matter is they have extreme poverty, really dirt poor, can't afford anything, they have extreme challenges and hardships and pressures and difficulties. We know that probably some of those types of pressures and difficulties may have taken the form of the shape of persecution, meaning people might have been losing their jobs or at least had the threat of losing their job, losing their families, or even the threat of losing families or even losing their own lives. And in the midst of extreme persecution, extreme poverty, Paul says they also had extreme joy. And these people were begging Paul, he later on says, to give. This is amazing. These people were not being forced to give. They weren't being coached or coerced into giving. Why? Because generosity is a sign that you've met God. Generosity is a sign that the gospel has gotten through to you, that you understand it. That it's making inroads into your heart. That's rewiring the way that you view everything you have. That's what generosity is. And so therefore, generosity, how you give, is not something a matter of like, ah, I got to do this again. Where it's painful, it's like frustrating, you're upset, ah, they're talking about money again. It's that they get to, they want to, they love to be able to joyfully give. They're plotting and scheming ways to be able to give away they're money. They're joyful. Another translation can actually describe this. God loves a cheerful giver. Some of you probably have heard before that that particular word can also be translated hilarious. 
It's this idea of just sheer joyfulness. When was the last time you gave with hilarity? You know what I'm saying? When you were just like, ah, I can't wait till they pass the offering plate. I'm so amped on giving to Jesus today. Or when the last time you saw someone in desperate need and you're just like, I just want to give. The funny thing is, is that when you give, it also brings about a sense of joy. I just read an article a couple of days ago. It was actually it was a secular article. I think it was in Good Magazine, right, online magazine. And it was a whole article about philanthropy and giving away. And in the particular article, it was basically describing how uh, one of the first reasons why people give is because they know when they give, it brings about a sense of joyfulness in their hearts, which is exactly what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. Better to give than it is to receive. There's more life in giving. But see, isn't it kind of interesting that the way that you and I are wired is we're not wired that way. We are wired, hardwired, to literally think that it's better to hoard, better to hold on to, better to control, better to sink our claws into, better to not give away than to receive. And that's the way that we're wired. We think that way. And if you don't believe me, look at a two-year-old. Right? No one had to teach a two-year-old how to hoard and fight and resist and not be generous. No one had to teach a child that way. In fact, quite the opposite. If you're a parent, you have to, at a very young age, begin to teach your children that everything they have has been a gift to them. I do this with my kids, even to this day. I mean, we go out, we get french fries, and I, I do my common thing called taxes. I'm like, taxes. I'm like, all right, here you go, Dad. Here's a bite. Right? But my kids, you know, they don't, they don't fight anymore. They're like, all right, Daddy, here you go. You, you paid. You paid for it? Like, yes, of course. I paid. It's from my paycheck. I mean, I, I gave this to you. I mean, without my money, you wouldn't be eating French fries or uh, ice cream or whatever. It's like the reality is, is that we are hardwired to want to hoard, to not let go of. And so what we see when the gospel begins to make an impact into our lives, generosity is released, and it's released not just in a sense of like, dogmatism, like I got to give this away because that's what good Christians do, but it's done in a way of joyfulness, cheerfulness, hilarity. Third thing that we see is they gave voluntarily. They gave voluntarily. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 3, it says this, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify beyond their means of their own accord. In other words, they gave because they wanted to. No one forced them. They weren't coerced. They just wanted to. It was voluntary. Now, the reality is, is that this is challenging for us because oftentimes, like I said, we live in a culture that, for the most part, money is what we hold on to. It's our currency. It's what we use. It's, and even we even have a word to describe it as. It's our security. But is it really our security? Is it really what we build our lives on? Is it really what makes our lives secure? I mean, we should be reminded of the fact that not too long ago, our whole nation was at you know, just a standstill because of financial breakdown. What happened? Well, God, money, let them down. People freaked out. Actually, some even committed suicide. Why? Because when your God departs or when your God dies, despair happens. It even happened on the day of the death of Jesus. When Jesus died, everybody went into a pit of despair. But the beauty and the difference of Jesus with money is Jesus resurrects Money can't. It's inanimate. It is powerless. It can't rescue. It can't save. 
But the reality is that we see here in the storyline is that when the gospel grabbed a hold of these people, they voluntarily were able to be free from it and were able to joyfully give it away. So here's the question. How good are you and I with being generous? What type of generosity, what type of game plan, let me ask you this, practically, do you have in your life, if you're a Christian, to be generous? Because some of you might be like, I don't have a game plan at all, and I don't know, Christ- I don't know Jesus. But for you, what you need to really focus on is not how much you can give, but focus on what God has already given to you. You need to focus on Jesus. You need to understand what God has joyfully, lovingly, voluntarily, generously has already given to you. Because if we go about the idea of generosity in a way of just saying, well, I've got to give because that's what I have to do, then in reality, it becomes an issue of demand and not one of delight. And as we talked about the very second lesson in this whole series, is it, God really cares about what motivates why we do what we do. In other words, God is not interested in your bemoaning obedience. God is not interested in us just being like, i got to be obedient because that's what Christians have to do. God is radically interested in our great delight in him and the joyful generosity that flows out of that. So what type of generous giver are you? I thought it would be kind of fun um, to just kind of give you guys sort of a little bit of a, an overview of 2012 of the generosity within Calvary Slow. Uh, we have a great financial team here at the church. And uh, they oversee all of this, and they put all the figures together and all the information together, and they help kind of put things into nice little charts in readable fashion. And so I thought it would be kind of fun to just kind of take a look at some of the ways in which Calvary Slow, you guys, have been generous in 2012. So I'm going to show you a couple slides to kind of help you see some of this. Um, 25% of you um, actually gave less than $500. So think about it this way. There's a lot of people that come to this church, probably around 1,200 adults, not counting children. So around 25% actually gave something up to around $500. Um, 13% of you actually gave more than $500 to the ongoing mission of this church, um, which, you know, is, is awesome. I, mean, I, I think it's great. Obviously, there's always ways in which we can improve and grow, but I, I think it's, it's a blessing to think about this. Some of you guys aren't Christians. We're happy you guys are here. We're happy that you guys are here. I, every week I talk to people that come to the church that aren't Christians. There's no expectation. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, and you haven't really understood generosity yet. Our hope and prayer is that through training and thinking through these things, that you would reconsider, rethink, and have your heart rewired to consider what generosity looks like. So there's always ways and areas in which you and I can practically grow in these areas. Let's take a look at the next slide. Um, Contributions uh, in 2012 was actually $775,000, almost $776,000 which actually is more than we've ever brought in as a church, ever. This is the highest number we've ever brought in as a church, which is amazing. So I want to say thank you to you guys. For those of you that donated, those of you that were part of the mission of the church, thank you. It actually helped us to do a lot of amazing things with the resources in Outward, which we'll get to in a second here. But kind of the breakdown of this is you can take a look at donations, obviously, is a a large sum. Uh, Mission 2013, the final thing that we did in uh, the months of November and December uh, raise around 3.3% of what we can use now to go into this particular year, this year, which we're excited about, which was around $25,000. So again, thank you to those of you that gave to that. Uh, expansion, building expansion, we have some resources saved for that. So once we're able to get permits and get ready to go, we can uh, start moving forward with that. 
benevolence, which is just money that is given towards benevolent types of things. The thing about that is um, we basically give around $20,000 to just people in the church that have need, which is amazing. $20,000 we were able to give away just randomly to people that have need within our church. Uh, missions. I want you to think about this. $140,000 went from this church out into the, all around the rest of the world. Now, some of this, around 9% to 10%, the church itself actually just designates a percentage of the income. All the sum total income of this church just goes straight back out to missions. Um, other types of money comes through people that donate to missionaries, and we sort of pass it through the church to go back out to steward towards missionaries. Take a look at the next slide. So again, just thank you for those of you that gave. Uh, take a look at the next slide, which is expenses. In other words, this is stuff, you know, that basically just boils down to staff. We've got people that are on staff that oversee various areas of ministry. It demands kind of full-time work. And, um, you know, if we could do it volunteer, it would be great. But because it takes so many hours, someone's got to do it, so we pay them. Um, facilities, obviously, to be able to have a building to meet in on a regular basis is important. Um, we see lots of different ministries that we have, missions, operations. So these are expenses. So take a look at the next slide, kind of show you how all this compares. Uh, the income was around 755, 756. Uh, the expenses, which basically means that we basically came out on top around seventy five thousand dollars, which is absolutely amazing. So we're yeah, it's totally worthwhile clapping for. That's great. So what's exciting about this is that we can use this to continue to go reinvest into the ministry, into the gospel. Our goals, our desires, is not to put money in the bank. Our goals and our desires is to use money to reinvest for kingdom work. Take a look at the next. Two slides, and we'll wrap this little section up and we'll be done. I just want to give you guys a little bit of a picture of the global and domestic gospel impact that Calvary Hill is having. Uh, these are some of the missionaries that we have represented literally around the world. And again, almost every one of these people are people that either A, got saved in this church, or started walking with Jesus and were disciples in this church, and we sent them out. And so we have people in Mexico and New Zealand and Brazil, Ukraine, England, Asia, Hungary, Chico, California. Uh, San Diego, Huntsville, Texas, uh, Tucson, Arizona. We've got people all around the world that we support, that we help, that we get behind. Um, next slide. And some ways to just kind of think about what happens here at home. 2012, we saw over 50 people get baptized, which is exciting. Uh, Easter, there was over 2,100 people that came out to the Easter service, which is amazing. Awesome. Uh, we've trained over 200 volunteers, people that get involved in community groups, children's ministry all around. We're continually doing that, continually doing trainings training people to do marriage coaching, uh, marriage mentors, community groups, so on and so forth. We continue to see people come to meet Jesus all the time. It's exciting. God's always doing something in this church. And your generous donations and your giving to this church, this is what it goes out to. We've got an amazing team of people that oversee the finances. We've got an amazing group of elders that help pray and seek God and think about ways and dream big and have vision as to how we can best steward and resource these things. We've got an amazing financial team that basically sets and operates checks and balances to make sure everything is totally dotted, everything is clean. We've got somebody that basically doesn't even go to our church, but their job solely is to just constantly go over all the books on a regular basis, just making sure we're being good stewards of everything we have. So here's my point. Generosity is something that can be measured. It can be something that can be measured within our lives and how we live and how we give. So, again, the question I want for you to think about is how are you with regard to generosity? Now, the reality is, again, we have a church. There's a lot of people in this church. There's a lot of needs. 
But we run a very small staff compared to the size of people that we have in the church. A very small staff. Um, not even all of our staff is actually full-time. Um, we would hire more people if we could. But it's kind of caused us to learn how to work smarter and train up volunteers and have people and uh, be trained up and work and brought into places where they can give and volunteer and give their time and serve them. We've got amazing people that serve. A lot of the people that serve a lot of hours don't get paid a dime. And yet they love Jesus and they serve God with their energy. And they still continue to give financially even though they're giving many, many hours of their week to serve Jesus into the ongoing mission of this church. So the point that I would make is that if we as a church looked at the mission of the gospel as being something so profound, something that God swept us up into, and then therefore calls us, welcomes us to join with him, to be a part of the ongoing mission of the church, then what we're really asking you to consider is how God maybe would want, would want to bring you into the ongoing mission of this church and of the mission of the gospel. It would look different for each one of us because each one of us, as Paul says here, has different means by which they're able to give. I realize a lot of our church, probably 70% of our church, is ages 35 and below. A lot of you are students. You don't have a lot of money. But the thing is, is that there's a tendency oftentimes to think, well, because I don't have a lot, a little bit won't matter. But because if we were to view ourselves and say, as a steward of what God's given us, Every little bit can be used to go into the work of the ministry to help raise up people, to help train people, to help continue to outfit and equip missionaries for the mission field, to help serve the needs of people within San Luis Obispo, to help take care of a lot of other different areas within this church. If we had sort of a mentality that says, what can I contribute? What can I give? Because what God has done to me, even though it might look different for all of us, irregardless of what we might think it might not make much of an impact, but in the sheer numbers of people joining together, uniting together to be generous with what we have, God can do, continue to raise even greater things that can be restewarded to go back out, to train more people, to raise up more people, to do more things for the purpose of the gospel. Look, at the end of the day, this church has always sought to be a generous church. We're always having opportunities to raise money to give it out, to give it away. And I'm always floored by how generous you guys are. So what I'm saying, keep up the good work, keep doing that, keep praying about how God may want for you to continue to reinvest to be part of his constant movement of the gospel in the form of generosity. So here's the final thing I want to ask. What's the motivation for generosity? That's what I want to finish on. Because like at the end of the day, a lot of us are looking for examples to follow Examples of generosity. I think, honestly, this is one of the reasons why, you know, there's sort of an intrigue around guys like Gandhi or the Dalai Lama. Like, man, these guys are amazing. They're really, really great examples. But let me say this. If, for example, Jesus gets put in the same category as just simply being an example of saying, wow, we're an amazing guy. He did amazing things. He loved his enemies. He helped people that were going through hard times. He was radically generous with everything that we had, that he had. If Jesus, if all he is to you and I is just a radical example for us to follow, then at the end of the day, all of us are doomed. Because none of us, none of us come close to the type of radical generosity that Jesus embodied. This is really important to know. Because if Jesus is merely an example to, for you to follow, and if that's all he is, then you and I are dead. Because you and I will never, ever 
given 100 lifetimes, ever be as generous with our time, energy, money, privilege, everything that we have, the way that Jesus was generous. But the reality of the gospel is that Jesus is not just simply an example for us to follow, but rather, through his generosity, through his example, was a sacrifice for us so that you and I could be saved. And this is exactly what I want to finish on, because here's what Paul basically says again. Take a look at, again, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse He says this, or verse 9, I should say, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here's the most amazing thing. If you see Jesus as nobility, as king, as the only one worthy of all honor, all praise, all glory, all might, If you see Jesus as that, but if you continue to see the ongoing storyline, the narrative of this God, derobing himself of his glory, clothing himself in your beggarliness, clothing himself in your poverty, robing himself in your shame, your guilt, your hardship, your oppression, your difficulty, your struggles, Ultimately to the point of death on the cross. If you see, he did that for you so that you, who are poor, beggarly, broken, sin-ridden, can be robed and clothed in his glory. In his nobility. What that does, it rewires your heart. It causes you to see that this king, though great and mighty and powerful, didn't think twice about casting it all aside to rescue you because he loves you and if you see that it changes you to the degree that it changes you it causes you to understand generosity in a whole new light that God the most generous God paid the most expensive price to rescue you and he didn't think twice of it because he loves you. He did it voluntarily. He did it joyfully. And he continues to do it regularly. He continues to rescue you. He continues to assist you. He continues to provide for you. He continues to help you. He continues to supply you with joy when it's at a deficit. He continues to pour out upon you blessing where you feel defeat. This is a God that has not only demonstrated a great example of generosity, but has done it as a means of rescuing you. To the degree that you see that, that will change you. And it will change you into a generous person. I'm going to have the team come on up. And as they're coming up, I'm going to tell you a quick story. I'm going to be done. Think of Scrooge. All right, I had an opportunity over the Christmas break time to go to the melodrama, if you guys have ever been there. It's awesome. Um, we saw the Christmas Carol. I think that's that was called, right? Stooge. That was called Christmas Carol, Christmas Story. I don't know. Stooge, whatever the whatever the case is. Obviously, you know the story. He's just this old miserly man that's always looking for ways to like milk money out of people. He doesn't really care. But what happens, obviously, in the storyline, he is shown by an angel um, his future. You know, this old, quiet gra- grave. Nobody there to you know. I, 
celebrate, you know, everyone's celebrating the fact that he's dead. No one's there to kind of give him praise and love and honor. He's just a guy that everybody hates, loves to hate, right? But at the end of this, he wakes up from this dream and he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm not dead. And my life doesn't have to go that path. And what really happened to Scrooge? Well, what happened to Scrooge was that he was given grace to see what would become if he doesn't change his ways. And as a result of that, after that, Scrooge goes from wringing his hands, trying to figure out ways to kind of milk people from their money, to wringing his hands. But this time, he's like, how can I get money away? How can I bless? He's still wringing his hands. He's still manipulating. He's still strategizing now not to take money, not to protect his money, but to give it away because he was shown grace. The gospel is even greater than the story of us just being given a vision as to what could become of us. The gospel shows us of what became of him as he bore our sin. To the degree that you see that, it changes you from being miserly, stingy, and being someone who can live with radical generosity. I want to pray for us. We're going to sing a final song. We'd like to partake of communion. Give it back. Invite you to partake of it. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, we invite you to see Jesus. We love Jesus to call. Bless you for the will. Pray for you if there's anything that's going on in your life. There's difficulties or hardships or struggles that you're dealing with right now. If there's issues of sickness in your life, we pray for you. We just want to look for the cross to uh, pray over you. Pray for you. I want to invite you into really what Jesus invites you into, which is to be a part of God's redeemed image bearers. Be stingy, be radically generous, the way he's radically generous. If that type of life sends a message to the world, I'm like, man, that our God is great. God, just thank you for your great grace, your great love, and we pray, Father, right now that as we sing you, as we worship you, God, we worship you with all of our souls, with all of our minds. And God, just thank you that you're here. You haven't abandoned us. You haven't abandoned this world. But God, that you, out of great, incredible generosity, came into this world to rescue us, to rescue us from our love affair with false gods, money being one of them. So God, set people free. Set us free to worship you, to love you, to honor you. Let's just sing, guys. In fact, why don't we all stand? To stand and I want to invite you to sing God, sing to God with all your heart, with all your soul, for what He's done for you.